0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through his word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. On April the 14th, 1970, a report was received from outer space at Houston, and it was a five-word message. Houston, we have a problem. It was the voice of Jim Lovell, who was the commanding officer. There were three men in that team in Apollo 13. Their destination was the moon, but they had problems that were not just any ordinary problems. They had a limited amount of oxygen. In fact, it was calculated not enough to get back to earth to complicate things. The propulsion system was malfunctioning. So they were in a world of hurt, if you will, and they made a plea. I remember it, waiting with literally hundreds of millions of people worldwide to see if they would make it back. As they began to re-enter the atmosphere, they went dark because there was no ability to communicate in that setting and the world was pleased that they got back safely. A solution was found. Houston helped them and by the way, I would say it was God who helped them to get back because so many people praying for a safe reentry of those three astronauts. We live in a world that is in need of God's help. We need to say, heaven, we've got a problem. We can see it all over the map. In the United States, we have a problem. Worldwide, we have a problem. Recent statistics show that now the number of people who are in some way active in their local place of worship, has dipped below 60%. That's the lowest level in no telling how long if ever. Also, what we discovered is only one out of five people so there are let me let me back up and I'm going to give misinformation if I don't. One out of five people say they have no affiliation. And one out of a third, when you reduce it down to the Generation Z, as it's called, and also Millennials, only one out of three have an affiliation with a local church. They call themselves spiritual, but there's no connection to the church. In the early 2000s, many of you saw The Passion of the Christ. Remember that movie? It, it was a gruesome movie to watch. I remember that. And churches all over the country, in fact, all over the world, were renting out entire theaters in order to expose people who did not know Christ to that story. It netted $600 million. It cost only $30 million, and what a success it was at the box office. But as the dust settled... Our church, by the way, we rented an entire auditorium out in the Northeast and it was filled with people who were in our church and also who had been invited by members of our church in hopes to open up a conversation about knowing Jesus Christ. But attendance went back to the way it was before. No spike. Where did all those people go? Well, they didn't go To the church, that's for sure. They were interested in Jesus, who is the head of the church, and also the bridegroom of the church. But they didn't have any interest in the bride herself, the church of Jesus Christ. Would you say we're in a problem in the church of Jesus Christ today? Well, yes, we are. And we need to say to the Lord, Lord... Please show us the solution to such problem. I believe the text that we're looking at today holds the answer to that. As we continue to look in the Gospel of John, we're in the 20th chapter, and we read from it under the leadership of our elder earlier. And I'm going to look at two days with you. There are two days which are mentioned one week apart. The first day is the first Easter Sunday, as we would call it. It's better known simply as Resurrection Sunday. So let's begin at looking at the events on that first resurrection day. We're going to begin by considering the situation in which the followers of Jesus found themselves. Look at verse 19. When therefore it was evening, on that day, and that day obviously speaks of resurrection day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. We see the situation. The disciples were secluded And please let me remind you of something we looked at a couple of weeks ago and maybe even last week. We know that the word disciple is oftentimes, if not exclusively, in the minds of most people, associated with the apostles. But what we, by a careful study of the New Testament, discover is the apostles were disciples before they were apostles. And when the apostles were called out by Jesus Christ, the men that he was going to pour his life into in private meetings for the next three plus years, what we know is there were a lot of disciples who were not selected to serve as apostles. The word disciple is a word which is the word of choice of the Holy Spirit in what we call the New Testament for A Christian, as we would call those who know Jesus. So, disciples were in this upper room. We don't know if all those disciples in that room were simply the apostles. We do know, of course, that Mary Magdalene was there. Remember, we saw on Easter Sunday how this woman was the first woman who went, and the first human who went, the first disciple of Christ, if you will, who went to the tomb and found it empty. It was she who took that news to Peter, who was the leader of the apostles, as it were, and then also to John. And Peter and John made a beeline for that empty grave. John outran Peter. Peter arrived. John deferred to the leader, waiting for him, that is Peter, to go in and examine the tomb and found it to be empty and what they saw there astounded the two of them. John went in after Peter because what they saw there was in effect a chrysalis like a cocoon and recall that when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, men who served on the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin depending on your choice of pronunciation. They were men who sat at the trial of Jesus. We remember also, when we go back to the trial of Christ, that the Sanhedrin would not accept a unanimous decision on an individual because they felt like there would be too much monkey business going on if everybody agreed. And they were Jewish, but they were kind of like Baptists too, you know. We can never really agree on everything, it seems like, in matters. But we know that these two men undoubtedly did not put a thumbs up to say that Jesus should be crucified. There was a difference there. And we know it because they risked their lives to go... And prepare the body of Jesus. And they did it because they had been closet disciples. They came out of the closet with the passion of the Christ. And so they were people who were maybe even at this gathering. We don't know. But there were disciples other than the apostles probably in that room. And they were... In that room, and the Bible talks about how the doors were shut. That seems so innocent. And when we read it in English, it is pretty innocent. The door shut. Do you shut your door at night? Yeah, probably you do. And probably everybody here, unless you forget it like I do sometimes, we lock the door, don't we? And some of us have double doors or double locks because we want to be safe in our own homes. Well, the word which is translated shut here, the language of the New Testament suggests that it was shut tightly and it could not be opened except with great force. And what they were seeking to do is to protect themselves. Remember the trauma that they had gone through when Christ was arrested and when some of them saw Jesus being crucified And they were still shell-shocked, even though they had heard that Jesus probably had been raised from there. They had not yet seen him. And they were there trying to protect themselves, and they were afraid of the Jews. Now, please understand that when John, and he does it many times in the gospel, he'll use this phrase, the Jews, and they're always antagonistic toward Jesus. Please don't equate that phrase, the Jews, to all Jewish people in the land of Israel. And we need to understand that. People have seized on this. I'm talking about so-called Christian people and themselves have persecuted the Jews. That is not the way that we're to interpret this. But the Jews were part of the elite who were hatching and had been successful the plot for Jesus being crucified. And what we see here is there is a visitation of Jesus, and he gives a salutation to them. The scripture says in the last part of verse 19, look at it, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Let me stop here just a moment. Jesus is the center of this church. I'm not talking about Coronado. I'm talking about this church, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name. Jesus is the head of the church, right? He is there and he's in the middle. And we're going to see another verse that indicates the same position of Christ to the disciples. He was in the center. If Jesus is not the center of our church, we are insulting him. We are quenching his spirit. Jesus should be the one we focus on, not one another, not the teacher, not the musicians, but on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as one man has said, is the center of the church, all else is circumference. Every eye is to be fixed on Jesus. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, imagine that, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And after He was raised from the dead, He sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and He lives today to pray for you in me. As part of the body of Christ. So, Jesus is the center of it all. We sing a little chorus Jesus be the center of it all. The sentiment of that chorus, that song which we oftentimes sing, is in keeping with what we're studying today. Jesus is to be in the center of the church. And then Jesus says, as he salutes them, Peace be with you. Shalom Alechem is the way it would have been said. Shalom, of course, is the Hebrew word and the Aramaic word for peace. This peace is not what we normally associate with peace. It's not public order. I thank God for people in law enforcement who keep order or try to. It's becoming increasingly difficult because of the laws that have come up. And what we do know is it's nice to have that comfort, isn't it? The peace that comes from that. Certainly it is. And this idea of peace that's in the word shalom also does not mean two warring factions coming together and forming a truce an end of hostilities toward each other. Nor does it describe harmony in personal relationships. eHarmony.com There's probably more than one person in this room who has gone looking for a mate on eHarmony.com I don't want a show of hands this morning, okay? But look, the key to harmony is the peace of God. Remember what Jesus says? In John 14, 27, we read it some time ago, probably eight months ago by now. And we looked at what Jesus meant when he says, My peace I leave with you. That's a word of bequeathing. It's like, this is my last will and testament, Jesus is saying. I'm leaving my peace with you. Wow. Think about the peace of Christ, how he exhibited that throughout his entire life. There were people out to kill Jesus even before He became the prophet, the Messiah. They were trying to kill Him. Why? Herod tried to have Him put to death. And so was the case. It's because He was a threat to them. But He says, I leave my peace to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Be not Men who let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. That peace is something that we can't figure out on our own. We can't even work hard to be at peace. I'm saying we ought to, as believers especially, be part of the solution to turmoil rather than part of the problem. But what we do know is that what this Word does convey, it conveys the peace that passes all understanding. And Jesus offers that to us. He's promised us that. He's bequeathed it. Us. it's our inheritance or at least part of our inheritance and it includes not what we commonly call peace but it it also includes forgiveness it begins as paul writes in romans 5 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through whom the lord our lord jesus christ So, Jesus gives them this salutation. It was something that was wonderful, I'm sure, for their ears to hear. We're going to go on now and look at this revelation that Jesus makes in verse 20. He says, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. What was this revelation? Well, here's what it was. Jesus didn't come through the door to get into where they were. He walked through whatever was standing between him and them because he, for the first time in his human body, He was able, because of his having fulfilled his mission, he was always God, but he deferred to the Father and only did what the Father told him to do leading up to this point. And once he was raised from the dead, he was transformed. And when people saw him, have you noticed when you read the resurrection accounts, like in the case of Cleopas and an unnamed disciple on the road to Emmaus, They did not recognize Jesus. Even Mary Magdalene did not recognize Jesus when she came to the empty tomb. And he revealed himself to her after Peter and John had gone back to the other disciples. Well, Jesus was transformed. Just like he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. His real nature shone through the garments which he wore when he, along with Peter and James and John, went up on this mount, and they were visited by Moses and Elijah, and the Father raised the veil so they could really see who he was. It blew their minds. But now, Jesus was looked upon by the, all of the disciples, not just Peter, James, and John, but the rest of them. And also, here was something that really blessed their hearts. It's one thing that He's God. That would be enough, wouldn't it? But he maintained his identity too. He His identity was still that of the human Jesus as well. How do we know? Because he said, I'm going to show you my hands and I'm going to show you the hole in my side where the spear of the soldier was rammed up into the region of my heart. So there was this revelation, and it was very important. If you want to read a little bit more about that part of the transformation, I encourage you to read the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which talks about this transformation of Jesus as a result of His being obedient to the Father and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. This leads us to a celebration to. The last part of verse 20, the disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The word rejoiced is too mild a word. This word speaks of ecstasy. They were just kind of out of control in their rejoicing because they had their Savior, their Master, their leader back. And He was who He said He was. He was fully God and He was Fully man. The joy that flooded their souls was incredible. The next thing we see is in verse 21. There's a commissioning. Look at verse 21 of chapter 20 of John. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. Jesus has already told them once. Why is he doing it again? Because he wants to drive the truth home. They needed to hear it. They were seeing a demonstration of it, but they needed to hear it. And what does it say? Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And the word sent means that Jesus was conscious of the fact that the Father had sent him and he was still in the pipeline of being an ambassador for the Father to be highest of all apostles as it were because he was the messenger that god the father sent to earth to display who god is in christ and accomplish the mission of paying for our sins he says as the father has sent me i also send you how did the father send jesus Well, keep your place here and turn back to chapter 17 of John to jog our memories a little bit. We're only going to look at one verse. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Verse 18 of John 17. He says, As you did send me into the world, Father, I also have sent them into the world. This is what God the Father told Jesus to do. Go into the world. What was the purpose of his coming into this world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Apostle Paul puts this way in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He said, it's a trustworthy saying, deserving all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world for what purpose? To save sinners. This was his mission. This was the commission that the Father gave him. And he fulfilled it, didn't he? The context of that mission for Jesus is the same context for our mission. Because as the Father sent Jesus, so what is Jesus doing to this group of apostles? Sending them. And by association, he's sending all believers And the good news that we see here is Jesus was called by his detractors, the people who conspired to have him crucified, they called him with a snarl. He's a friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with tax collectors, prostitutes, and others who were lumped together in a group that was a big group of Israel who were sinners, people who had broken the law of God, and there was no apparent hope for them to get exonerated from that. And birds of a feather flocked together. And they were the people who were the friends of Jesus. You don't see a lot of religious people flocking around Jesus because they were too cool for it. They thought they were holier in some cases than Jesus was. But Jesus' heart is for people nobody else has time for. Or nobody else wants to have on their phone list. People that they would never invite to come into their homes. Jesus was comfortable. He's comfortable with people, period, but he was, people themselves were most comfortable to him. What does that tell about us? It tells us that we need to be people who reach out to all people without determining what class they fit into. Thinking of them as they are, people created in Christ, not in Christ, excuse me, people created in the image of God. And they are people who are redeemable. They are people whom Christ died for. And therefore, we should look for people no matter who they are. As we go out daily, sent out as it were, into our workplaces, into our communities, into our places of recreation. When we go out, we, as we go, we saw last week, we should be on the lookout for people whom the Lord has placed in our way so that he could love them through you and me. Now we're getting close to the answer that heaven would give to us about the problem of the church going downhill. And it's the problem of being selective as to whom we care for. We're not to be people who limit ourselves to certain people who aren't Christians. But be open to lead anyone to Christ if God gives us the opportunity to share the gospel of Christ with. Beautiful to think about it. The Lord sending us into the highways and the byways is the way that Old New Testament speaks it in calling all people to come. Jesus wants a full house and we... Can be a part of that if we just understand who Christ is and who we are. Look at 22. Verse 22 com- begins or continues actually with this commission. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same wording that is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. The very phrase that's used here, he breathed on them, is the phrase that is used when leaning over a piece of clay, he breathes life into Adam. He gave physical life to Adam when he created Adam in his image. Jesus breathes life into us by the Spirit of God. In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, this is what we read. God says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He said, I will give you a new spirit and that spirit, capital S, will guide you. And He will lead you to be obedient to Me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. It's He who gives us life where there's death. We're all born dead spiritually. I don't know if you know that, but that's true to the Scripture. We're dead on arrival spiritually. We have life in our soul. We can think. We can feel. We can make decisions. We have Life in our bodies, we can get around and do things. But the dead spot in every human's life when she or he is born is the spirit in that person. And it's the place where God lived in Adam and Eve before they sinned. And in restoring us to himself, he sent the spirit. Jesus says to these disciples, he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word that John uses in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, But as many as received Christ, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Receiving. That word means to gladly welcome, without any kind of restrictions, some, someone into your life into your home, into a relationship. Receive the Holy Spirit. Welcome Him into your life. You may be like the Ephesian believers. And I think it's in the 18th chapter of Acts. Paul comes and he finds some people who were believers there. And as he talked to them, he sensed that they had not become aware of the Holy Spirit. And they were asked by Paul, have you received the Holy Spirit? And you know what they said? We haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now I would imagine in a crowd this large, there are people here who have received Jesus, but you've never equated receiving Jesus with receiving the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can call the Holy Spirit God except that that person has been born again. I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. So it's possible that you didn't know that God the Father sent Jesus the Son to die for your sin and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live in your life to confirm your salvation and the Holy Spirit's the one who among other things we've seen it in this text what is the fruit of the spirit galatians 5 says what is it it's love joy peace ah peace this peace that jesus talks about is the same word in both cases in 14:27 peace here in this chapter peace in galatians chapter 5 where the fruit of the spirit and all over may the god of peace himself sanctify you entirely is what the Word of God says in First Thessalonians. That means set you apart for His use and His glory. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. What a wonderful understanding. And He empowers us, doesn't He? Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses. In All realms of the world, excuse me. (coughs) So, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the power to fulfill our mission as we depend exclusively upon Him. Verse 23 says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Excuse me. So, this is really important. This does not mean that any human can forgive another human of their sins. The reason we know that is that there's no evidence in the New Testament of any of the apostles forgiving people of their sins. Please pray for my voice and for your being able to endure it for a few more moments. But what we know in the book of Acts, if you go to Acts chapter 10, let's consider what one of these apostles said to a man who had called him to ask what it meant to be a follower of Christ. (coughs) Here's what he says. In verse 43, this is what he says. Thank you, Billy. This is what he says, Peter says, about who forgives sin. Verse 43 of Acts 10, Of him all the prophets bear witness... That through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. How are we forgiven? It's through the name of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus who forgives us. That's right. Let's turn and listen to another apostle, the apostle Paul. Go to chapter 13 of Acts, and let's see what he says in verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through Him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Here are two apostles, Peter and Paul, arguably the leaders of the apostolic group overall, but what we see is they don't claim power to forgive anybody. There's no human being, no priest in the Catholic Church, no pastor in an evangelical church like ours. We cannot absolve people of their sin. The Bible does say in the book of James, confess your sins to one another. But it doesn't limit that pool of people that we can confess our sins to, to someone who is ordained by a church. It's something we're to do in concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice the reciprocal nature of it. It's not a one-way deal. confess your sins one to another is what the Scripture says. And if that were not enough, in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible tells us, who can forgive sin but God? There's nobody human who's God except Jesus Christ. So I don't care how far advanced you are as a believer, you can't forgive people. You can forgive them when they offend you, and you're responsible to do that. But you can't wash their sins away by simply forgiving them. That's something that belongs strictly and only to our Lord Himself. Let's go back to our text in chapter 20 and look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Some of your translations translate the word Didymus, that means. What it means is twin. He was a twin, evidently. Do you ever sense that there's like two people inside of you? And I'm not talking about you're being schizophrenic or anything like that. I'm talking about, do you ever feel like there's a battle going on for control of your life? You're sensing what goes on if you know Jesus in your life. The Bible says in Galatians 5.17, there's a battle between the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer and your own self, the flesh. And so this battle royal wages in us even after we come to Christ. But the way to defeat that is to depend on the Holy Spirit to control us and say, the Lord rebuke you, Mike Woods, or put your name in there. Rebuke you. You have no entitlement to your life, Mike. It's because you have been bought with the price of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He is your master. And you are to be at his disposal, submitted to him. Look at 25. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. They were so excited when Thomas finally shows up. We've seen the Lord. And go on to say, unless, and then he says, Thomas, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He was stubborn, wasn't he? Then eight days later, and actually this would be one week, and you want to know why I would say that, Because when a person was saying, this time next week, I'm going to be doing such and such, the week would include the day that's spoken of in all the intervening days. Seven plus one, the one that you're in. And so there's no discrepancy here in this. And this is the second Easter, by the way. Remember Resurrection Day? When was it? We've already seen it, correct? And every Sunday is Resurrection Day. And we need to understand the emphasis that's placed here because the Lord wants us to gather together as believers. Not so someone's ego like mine can be stroked because people come to hear me teach. Never, God forbid. But because we're gathering in whose name? And for what purpose? In Christ's name to glorify Him for sure. Look at verse 26. After eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Thomas is there this time. He's not going to miss this possibility. Jesus came and doors having been shut and stood in their midst. Just like repeating what we read back up earlier in this chapter. so Like a repeat. Jesus recreates the scene. He was so good to Thomas. And he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands, reach here your hand, put it into my side. How did Jesus know that? Well, he was no longer hindered by his submission to the Father so that he would not know things like he knows them now because in that period of his being human, he submitted himself to the Father. He's still human, but... He's free now to reveal who he is to anybody and everybody whose contact he makes. And so, what we see here, he's there. And look what he says. After he says, Put your finger in your hands, he says, Reach your hair, hear your hand, put it into my side, and stop being an unbeliever and believe. He was patient with the doubting Thomas. He is patient with us when we doubt. We know that from Jude 22, part of that little verse, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Jesus was merciful, but there comes a time when we have to be confronted by Him about things that are wrong in our thinking and our behavior. And Jesus knew He was not doing Thomas a favor to not tell him, Stop it. Stop being an unbeliever, a doubter. Become a believer. Look what Thomas did. He answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Do you know this is the only time anyone in the New Testament calls Jesus God? He's oftentimes called Lord. And we have to call Him Lord to be forgiven of our sins. But what we know here is This is a great profession of faith, isn't it? My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? And he probably was talking to the whole group there. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. I have not seen Jesus with my physical eyes. But I have seen him in the pages of Scripture. And He has revealed Himself to me. And probably 90% of the people here know Jesus because of who He has become to us. Now let's close by going back to where we began. Heaven, we have a problem. Jesus has fixed that problem, hasn't He? Of course, by His death and resurrection, but also by His commission to us. We are people who have the gospel. The gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God. Do you believe that? It's dynamite. That's the word that's used. Dunamis is the word for power. Powerful. Also, the Bible says in Second Timothy, verse 7 of chapter 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, the same word. Power and love and a sound mind or self-control, depending on the relationship. God has come to live in us by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. Wherever God leads you, He's leading you. Begin to communicate with the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, use me today in my home. Use me in my place of work. Use me in my going and my coming. Use me. Help me to be part of the solution to the decline of the emphasis and the churches impacting the world. I close with a simple quotation from a man named Leslie Nubigen, who is an evangelical scholar. He says this, listen, The church is sent into the world to continue that which he came to do in the power of the same Spirit, reconciling people to God. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord. Our God, forgive us for not looking more often to you instead of looking around at everything that's going on. Because when we fix our eyes on you, we know your eyes will direct us to be the solution as your Holy Spirit dwells in us and Speaks through us and loves through us. And Lord, please be with your church in El Paso, not just this expression. All over El Paso, Lord, we pray there'd be an awakening to the Holy Spirit's power. And we would see changed lives and people coming to know Jesus from every corner of our society. In his name we pray. Amen.